Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Svelte Radio. As always, we'll start with introductions. I'm Kevin, and I run a site called Svelte School, where I teach people about Svelte, as well as other fun stuff around the web. Yep. Hey, everyone. I'm Sean. I work on, I guess, a bunch of things, but uh, currently I'm a, I'm a senior developer advocate at AWS. Hey, everyone. I'm Anthony. Yeah, I also work on a bunch of things, but I currently run my own startup called Bionk which I'm the CTO, and uh, I'm also a Svelte maintainer. Awesome. So today we have an awesome guest on the show. Can you uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Hussain. I am a web developer advocate on Google and the Google team. So I work with Chrome, but I also work in the focus of web as a whole. That's awesome. It's kind of my idea to bring in Hussein on the podcast because I thought he was, he'd be a good guest. Hussein has basically dabbled in every framework ever. I didn't know you started out in Angular, actually, but I, I dug through your, your blog and I was like, this guy did Angular? I first met you at Boston, React Boston, where you gave a really good talk that turned into this kind of semi-viral blog post on React performance. Uh, and now you're dabbling in Svelte. And, and then between you and your 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 twin, <laughs> you you also you cover all the frameworks. I think I think that's a that's a strategy somewhere. So so yeah, I mean I I figured you'd be a really good guest because you have a you have a cross framework perspective that uh, most people don't. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I was like I've never actually properly used Vue, but um, my twin brother Hassan has been really involved in that space. Which is interesting. <laughs> So, so you started out at, with Angular. So, can can you like talk us through the history of like the frameworks you used? Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. So, I only got into web development about four, five ish years ago, and that happened right up right after I graduated from university. I was in my first job, and I was just trying to get my footing and like my first sort of role. And then I sort of joined the web development team, and we were building a pretty large insurance platform, and we were using Angular JS. And this is pre-component AngularJS. So we're talking model view controllers. We're talking root scope and, and bindings and dependency injection and services. So that was kind of my first foray into the frameworks world, which is interesting because I think we see a lot of discussion on, on Twitter and the like about how, you know, a lot of people think it's better to just first understand JavaScript, the basics of JavaScript before you jump into a framework. There's a lot of other people who think it doesn't really matter. Learning is learning. I think that for me was a forcing function for me to just learn JavaScript because I had no idea what was going on in the beginning. So I felt really lost for at least a few months. Funny story, it was me and my twin brother at the same job, sitting side by side, working on the same project for a year. (laughs) (laughs) I can really relate to getting forced to learn JavaScript by doing frameworks. Right. Same thing for me. Yeah. Right, exactly. But I think after a few months, when I started actually also spending some time learning JavaScript on my own, but also trying to understand how AngularJS worked, like things started clicking, and I was like, okay, wow, now I can see why it makes sense to use a framework. And then from then on, it just kept growing. Where I tried dabbling in Angular two when it was brand new, and I started learning how to use Angular two plus. And then about a year after that, I started using React. Actually, started using React Native before React because I was like, it might be cool to just build a mobile app. And I had an idea for a mobile app. So on the, whatever time that I had on the side, like I was still doing my day job, but I'll go home and I was like, let me try to build a mobile app. It took a long time. I did it and I was like, this is super cool. And then I only used React for the web after I used React Native, which is I think an interesting direction. <laughs> but I think it was also cool too, because it actually showed me how the framework worked. Yeah, yeah. Most people usually do it the other way around, right? They start with React and then React Native. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, you wrote the book on React Native too. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, I worked with Devin, who at the time was at Airbnb, but now he does freelancing and a lot of contracting work. And then I worked for Full Stack IO, their publishing company. But I I wrote an Angular book with them first, so it was oh. like a modern Angular JS book. Yeah, and it was an interesting idea at the time because Angular two plus was already out, and Nate, one of the main organizers in the publishing company was like, maybe we should actually talk about actually building AngularJS apps using all the new tooling in the AngularJS ecosystem. Like how do you build component AngularJS apps? How do you migrate to Angular 2 plus? So it's a very interesting idea. And I and I actually saw the merit behind it because I've seen large AngularJS apps in a lot of companies I've worked with and they're just trying to figure out what to do with it, right? So I did that first. 
And then when I actually started dabbling React Native for a bit, we talked a bit more and we're like, hey, maybe it might be good to have a React Native book. And then I was introduced to Devin and then there was Sophia and Anthony, a few other co-authors, which was nice because I wasn't the only person writing that book. It's always good to have some extra hands. But yeah, that was a great experience too. I obviously remember using Angular 1 as well. Is migrating Angular 1 to 2 pretty much just rewrite everything or is there a better way? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it honestly depends like on what state the AngularJS app is in. If we're talking about you know, Angular 1.3, where it's all model view controllers, then yeah, it's going to be a very hard <laughs> shift. But if you're using one of the later Angular 1 versions, which are already use, using components, I think that transition is going to be a lot easier. It's still going to take a lot of work, but I think it's just having that. And I think the book that I wrote kind of also tried to you know, describe that. Like It really depends what state and what version of Angular 1 you're using. Sure. And it depends, I guess, on having good architecture in the first place, making making the right decisions, I suppose. Exactly. So after React, where did you move? Or are you still stuck in React land? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so like I was working on React. And at that time, I was working at a company called Wrangle, which is based out of Toronto. And they're sort of a dev agency, dev consultancy. So I worked on many different projects that use React a few projects that use Angular. So it was nice to actually shift around and just play around with different frameworks depending on my project. I've always wanted to just try Vue. I guess I never got the chance to. <laughs> and then, so I kept doing that. And then I joined Google about a year after in that company. And the role at Google that I had that I mentioned was I'm a developer advocate, which is not your typical software engineer. And for anyone listening who doesn't really know what a developer advocate is, every company I think has a slightly different definition of developer advocate. but they're essentially engineers, but they act as a bridge between the core engineering team that are building a product, building a tool, and the community, right? Like, so there's new APIs coming out, new features coming out. How do you make sure those are being assessed properly? How do you make sure that developers that use those features know how to use them? What if they have feedback? How do you bring it back and so forth? I also think it's very different to say you're a developer advocate for something like the web, right? Because we're not pushing a product. I don't go around trying to push Chrome. No one on my team does it which is good. So I think that's also different. So my focus now has been primarily just speed and performance. How do we make sure the web as a whole improves in terms of speed and performance? And the nice thing that I think I have is I joined the team from the Angular frameworks. So it's more so like, how do we make sure we have performant React apps? How do you make sure we have performant Angular apps and Vue apps? And, and something that I've been doing for the past while now is, you know, I've been trying to measure and just see the usage of all sites that use frameworks, right? How expansive is framework usage in the wild? And if we can prove that, you know, let's say billions of page loads every week are on sites that use frameworks, I think it's a very clear cut evidence that if we improve these frameworks, we end up improving the web as a whole, right? Yeah, to, to me, this is kind of like the, a very notable shift. And, and honestly, that time that I met you in React Boston was, was the first that I even knew that there was this kind of new direction. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's actually a new direction, but as far as I, I understood, basically Chrome hired Nicole Sullivan to lead and embrace the frameworks because previously Chrome was very much like use the platform and all of you framework people are, are just wrong. And it seems like Chrome is a lot friendlier. Uh, or, I don't know if it's Chrome or I don't know if it's Google. Google as a whole is a lot friendlier to, to frameworks than maybe three years ago, which which has been very awesome to watch. And it, it enables people like Hussein to actually work on cross-framework initiatives that, that improve the, the overall performance of things. We're going to talk about one of those projects that you've been working on, the Perf Track. I don't know, would you, would you call it a website or a project both web app i guess yeah website all right we're uh just gonna take a small break for a sponsor spot and then uh, we'll be back with more on that are you looking to get better at building websites in svelte well you're in luck level up tutorials has tutorials on how to get started scott is an excellent teacher and has courses on a broad range of web development topics so if you want to support the show and learn Svelte at the same time, check out the Svelte for Beginners and Sapper for Beginners courses at svelteradio.com slash level up. So performance track, what is it? Maybe a little bit of background before I talk about the exact that exact app. Actually, at the time of React Boston, that was when I kind of wanted to just get some data on how many sites that use React and how well were they performing. And I thought it would just be a good slide. It'll be a good data point. And Sean, I don't know if you remember, I think I had one slide in my presentation that just talked about, I think, the number of React sites that have a certain JavaScript byte percentage 
or percentile. I don't ex- remember exact numbers, but and I just thought it'd be a good thing to just sort of talk about how, oh, you know, X percent of React sites are doing this in terms of performance. There's room for us to improve and grow. So I was just looking for ways to actually do that. I was looking for where can I get this kind of information from? And then there's this, there's this project called HTTP Archive that initially it was built by, I think, a few Googlers working on it. And I think Steve Souders was one of the original authors. And now it's it's a pretty large initiative. Many Googlers and even external community members are working on it. And the idea behind HTTP Archive is it's an open source attempt to track how the web is built. And what it does is it actually has a massive pipeline where it tests and crawls millions of URLs every month. Now we think we're looking at five to six million URLs. And then it will store data on them, all kinds of data. And it does that by running different tools on them. So web page test is one of them. Um, it runs Lighthouse on these pages as well. And the nice thing is it just has this massive data set where anybody, it's completely public, it's completely, it's free to use. And anybody can download and just look into the data sets themselves. There's different ways to do that. One way that I've been trying to do that is by using BigQuery. It allows you to run pretty simple queries to just run complex operations. And I was doing that, and that's when I started getting some data on React, right? Like how much, how many React sites exist in this five, six million, you know, data set? How well are they performing? How many JavaScript bytes are they shipping? And I just wrote this super simple Google Doc that had this information for React and a few other frameworks. And I just shared it with a few Googlers internally. And then a massive sort of thread started where people were super interested in seeing this information. And they were like, wow, like this is really interesting. We had no idea about the scope of, you know, sites to use frameworks. We don't even know like how well they're performing. And then I realized, okay, this is a bit bigger than just a one page Google doc. So then I was just thinking of ways of now, how can I visualize the data? So I had a lot of this data in my mind. I was using them in talks like React Boston. And I just didn't know exactly how, what was the easiest way for people, for anybody to sort of see this information, right? So I, I've had this idea of maybe I can build this dashboard type of site. I spent a while coming up with the name, ended up with PerfTrack, probably is not the best name, <laughs> but at this point it's too late. And I just had an idea of like, what if I can just visualize the data in some way, also make it possible for people to just pick different months because HTTP archive crawls happen every month. And then what if they can just start seeing trends in this information, right? What if, for example, Angular, Vue, Svelte, so forth, the authors and developers of these frameworks, what if they can actually start seeing how you know, sites that use these frameworks are performing. And what if they can also see patterns? You know, let's say they notice X percent of their sites are performing poorly in one aspect. Maybe this that's for a specific reason. And maybe there's something that they can do about that. So that was the idea of PerfTrack. I, I built the initial version about a year ago, also with Svelte. Didn't look like anything it did right now. It was really, it was like a weekend project. And I just wanted to get something up and running. <laughs> um, so it had a significant amount of issues. But I just had something up and running, and then I kind of shelved it for a bit. And then I came back, and I was like, okay, I think now is a good time to just you know clean it up and make it public. And I did that. And I think the one thing that I was really hesitant about was, even though all the data is coming from public data sources, which is HTTP Archive and Chrome User Experience Report, I think I was just super hesitant to, to have it out in the world because I knew once I did that, people were going to immediately start looking into it and start saying things like, oh, Framework X is performing a lot better than framework Y on this aspect. I think framework X is a better framework. This is the framework to use. And I think that's just a very unfair judgment to make, right? Like looking at a certain number doesn't mean that the framework's at fault, right? People who use a framework are using a million other things. And so I wrote an about page. I tried to emphasize that significantly enough. Um, I still get that sentiment time to time. And I think it's natural, right? As humans, when you see numbers and, and you can just start comparing, you're bound to do so. But it's something I've been stressing quite often. And yeah, so like it's up and running. There's been a a few contributors already actually adding and helping out. And right now what it does is there's, I think about six or seven frameworks at the moment. And it shows some core information from HTTP archive. Like, you know, what are the JavaScript byte percentiles? You know, like for example, at the 50th percentile, how many bytes are React sites shipping? And it does it for total bytes and image bytes. And then I'm also using Chrome user experience report, which is another data source. And this comes from Chrome's internal metrics pipeline. And then that actually tells you real user information, like real user metrics, like how are users experiencing first contentful pain in your site? Like how long does it take them to see the largest element in your site? You know, are they seeing any layout shifts? And that's all real information. We're like, we're not just looking at lab data. We're looking at how real users experience it. So there's a section of the site that does that too. There's like six or seven metrics where I show that information. But yeah, so there's this initiative called Web Vitals and Core Web Vitals, which 
actually only happened about, I think we, we had announced it about six-ish months ago. And the idea is we have all these metrics we've been telling developers to look at and authors to look at for a while now, right? Like a lot of people in Chrome are very heavy in, on these important metrics, not just Chrome, other browsers as well. But we sort of had this initiative to group these key metrics into one thing. And for example, when we say core of vitals, we mean three metrics, largest contentful paint, first input delay, and cumulative layout shift. And, I, and the reason why we have that is we think that it, that's a very good characteristic of performance. You're not only looking at just paint times, you're looking at other things like layout shift and how long it takes for the user to interact with your page. And even though that, that might change in the future, the metrics might change in the future, the initiative is here to stay. So there's a section on PerfTrack that actually shows these vital metrics. And I think that's also super useful for people to see. Um, it's, maybe this is, I don't know if this is a thing you know or not, but there's a notion that the service worker now doesn't really contribute to the Lighthouse score anymore. I was, someone was telling me this morning that it's become less important. Yeah, actually, I'm not super clear. I don't know if there's, if there's a specific audit that looks for service workers. So maybe I think he, was, he or she was alluding to that, where maybe previously they were talking about a certain audit that suggested using a service worker. And now that specific audit's not doing that anymore. And I think that might be the case. I'm not 100% certain, so I'll double check. Yeah. In terms of performance, like looking at the performance scores, I think using a service worker or not, there's no specific flag that will show up. You know, it might improve your performance numbers. And if it does, the number will just be better. Cool. Makes sense. So I'm on the site right now. You can toggle between the frameworks, but then in the category section, you have the overall framework and then there's the meta frameworks on top of the frameworks. And if you toggle between most of them, you'll see that basically adding like a static or a server rendering layer improves all of the metrics across the board. Just it just like shifts, shifts all the web vitals to the right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was one nice thing to sort of see, right? Like we, we always have these discussions, a lot of people do about, you know, the server rendering help, does having meta frameworks with all this additional tooling by default, like automatic code splitting, static rendering, um, does all that help by default? So I think it's just nice to see some data. Again, there's, I think, a lot of caveats to mention, like, the, you know, the sample size is different, right? <laughs> when you kind of filter like React and Next.js. So I think there's always a lot of those things to keep in mind, but still looking at the overall data, it's still interesting to see, right? How that number actually shifts when you pick a meta framework over just using all of a certain framework like React. I have a question about, I guess, the metrics. So to you, it might be, it might feel like you've been advocating for this for a while, but I feel like the the messaging, especially on uh, the new the new metrics, like uh, I guess first input delay and cumulative layout shifts are, are like the, the newer ones. That really only picked up like in the past year or so. But I think Nicole, in some of her talks in, in that she, I think she did like a tour of conferences last year. So one of the issues that, that we have as in framework land is that we definitely take a hit in terms of of load time to load more data so we can do client-side routing, right? Nicole was basically saying we don't have a metric to do the trade-off between like, okay, we'll load more stuff in on the first load to make the subsequent loads much faster. Or is 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 the idea that everything should be async anyway, so we will just like chop that off? Like what's the what's the thinking behind that? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. Even like in perf track, right? Like it's it's great to see things like, you know, paint times. But just like you said, Sean, when you're talking about something like, you know, using a client-side framework that has client-side routing, we, we miss a really important aspect, right? Like the fact that when you have your JavaScript bundles hydrated at the beginning, just navigating between pages doesn't need a new document, right? It doesn't need a new server interaction. I think that's just really important if we're talking about, about frameworks in general, right? Like that's a trade-off you get from having a large JavaScript bundle to begin with. So that's a really missing blind spot right now. You know, in web vitals and core vitals and metrics in general. And I'm, Nicole is super invested into that, which is awesome. She's been doing a great job. And it's been so nice to have someone like her and other people on the team that are just thinking of that from the lens of frameworks as well as just, you know, sites that client-side route in general. So that's a really missing blind spot right now. The good news is Nicole and a lot of other people as well on, on the Chrome Speed Metrics team are looking into it like actively. I think it's one of the higher priorities right now. And it might take some time, but um, it'll be hopefully, you know, in the near term, not in the very long term, we might start seeing things we can use to actually measure, right? And then it'll be nice to now actually look at that and just compare and be like, oh, you're using a framework. Yes, your first paint times might be slow, but you're getting a lot better, you know, in terms of, of clients and navigations. One thing that we've also been doing in the Chrome team, like we have a small sub team that have been working on, on improving frameworks itself. And we've been working a lot with the Next.js team, trying to see if we can have that framework improve significantly. 
So one thing that I did was I actually added some performance marks and measures into Next.js's routing framework. I just had like sort of a custom identifier so people can actually now measure. And if any Next.js developer could extract that information themselves for every route change they make, but it's just Next.js specific, right? Like how do we scale that now? Do we do that for every other framework, every other router, right? Like do I jump into React Router, add marks and measures? We could, but we're also thinking of ways to just have it at a high level instead of trying to do it for every single routing library and framework that exists, right? Makes sense. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. Yeah, I think I think image, you know, especially for cumulative layout shift, the image placeholder, whatever you call it, every framework is going to have to have an image component. Like so, Gatsby has had this for a while. Some of your colleagues opened some some PR to to Next.js. It seems like it's a it's a really good uh, thing to have. I think yeah, I think we need some primitives at some higher level. I, I don't know what that looks like. For sure, no, that's a great point. Yeah, I think it was Alex Alex Castle who I think opened up the RFC on on Next.js. For an image component, but yeah, like it's super nice to to see some core frameworks doing this. But I agree, this might also just mean right, like if every framework is using a component like that, maybe we can have something at the web level that can do this, right? But we have image lazy loading, right? I I, I haven't actually used it, but but <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't that do that? It's, yeah, doesn't that it's, do that already? Like, why do we need a separate component? Yeah, yeah. So we do have yes, we do have an API now to natively lazy load images. So instead of you know using third party libraries or or running APIs like intersection observer, you can just have uh, a loading attribute in any image. Loading equals lazy, and that's it. So that's super, it was super like when we announced it and launched, it was great. I think the feedback was super useful. A lot of people had, you know, some interesting feedback about what are the thresholds? Can we control how like, you know, as a developer, right? And I think that now find the green control is not available yet, but at least the functionality is there. So I think the image component is, is, it does take lazy loading, but it also looks into a lot of other things. It looks into image sizing and responsive images. It looks into, you know, having an appropriate placeholder. So the thing is a lot of things that, an image component in a framework like Next.js could do. And the idea I think behind Alex's proposal is as a developer, I wouldn't need to worry about any of this, right? I just want to have my image, define my image, and then let the framework take care of all of it. So lazy loading is one thing, but it's just a lot of other aspects on top too. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of features. Makes me compare it to React Suspense as well. They intentionally released it sort of without any knobs in like it was just it was just like a suspense component only for loading components but you actually like a lot of people actually want more features it's just that we don't want to release that yet because we don't know what it looks like so so i kind of compare it that similar api design i don't know i, I like i like api design yeah no that's a good way to think of it too for sure so going back to the data on the on the site what kind of conclusions can you draw about frameworks and specifically <laughs> why it's felt the best <laughs> yes <laughs> and preact to be honest right it's also doing very well i have to make an observation here because before we start like this svelte has the split is really weird on svelte so most of the applications like two-fifths are really small and then one-fifth is really big and everything else is in between and it's weird and it makes me think that maybe there's a bunch of people using svelte because it's just like super you know super compact and small and there's a bunch of people are using it just because it's really nice to use and they get a good DX. But what made, when I was thinking about this through, I think that one of the things that thought I thought was maybe it's just because there isn't as many huge sites, like massive, like the Airbnbs using Svelte yet, that maybe the results are a little bit swayed in terms of there's a lot of hobby projects out there which are quite minimalistic. And maybe it's not quite the, the split that I think it is. I also wonder about double counts. Like what if a site is using two frameworks? like in mid transition 100% yeah yeah no anthony like also that's a great point right like i think if you just think of it as from you know the perspective of a of a typical developer working in a in a large scale medium sized company or whatever and they have to build i don't know an application that's going to last 2 or 3 years right and i'm sure when they're having those discussions they're probably like should we use something like svelte and then when they look at examples they're probably like i don't know if it's worthwhile maybe it's just something react so i 100% agree i feel like like we, need, we definitely need to keep thinking about that too, right? Like that skew matters. If you're comparing small hobby projects from tech-savvy developers who want to try something new versus these large-scale massive apps, right? So that definitely matters. Also, if you look at Svelte and PerfTrack, the sample size is tiny for, I think, a number of reasons. One of them being, I don't think there's a very easy way to detect Svelte, right? So all these tools here, like they rely on some detection methods, right? And I Unless I know for certain that you know detection method's super foolproof, right? Like I'm hesitant to add. How how is it detecting salt? 
by the way. So right now it's actually looking for, I think, spell dash class identifiers. I was thinking that's probably That's, pr- that's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm sure it's good, but I, I'm sure there's probably maybe, yeah. be, I don't know if there's going to be a false negative. I'm sure there has to be at least a few, <laughs> um, but I think that's probably the best way now, right? That we have now. Yeah, I reckon right now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a feature request to change that, to be able to change that prefix. We haven't implemented oh, really? it yet. I didn't but, know that, uh, okay. I don't know, then it might, <laughs> it might do something else to results. <laughs> that might definitely change things. <laughs> I'm looking at the, like the data sets that are available. So you, you currently have two two data sets per framework, right? If that makes sense, April, May. So are there are there any plans for adding future months or past months at this point, I guess? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, HP Archive and, and Chrome user experience report, they generate new data sets every month. I've just <laughs> meaning to get the chance and the time to do so, <laughs> but I will be adding all the newer data sets. And the idea, what I'm hoping is after a year or however long, Anybody can use the site and just sort of see if things have changed, right? Month to month to month. I think that is just a super useful thing to see, right? As a framework author or developer, just to see if there's actual changes in in the ecosystem. Um, But yeah, no, I definitely plan on adding new ones. I think the one thing I do want to mention is too is like these crawls happen in the first of the month, but the data becomes available, I think, around the third week of the month. So it's going to be staggered a bit. But eventually, I'm hoping to always just have, you know, every month there, and we can always just look back and use it as some sort of canonical resource of how well framework sites are doing or if they need improving. Is there room for folding this project into HTTP Archive? Because, I mean, it's kind of like HTTP Archive also has some other metrics and then also tracks them over time. Googlers kind of own it. <laughs> like, is there a path there or are they just like completely separate? Yeah. So when I built Perfect Track, I was kind of just building it from the standpoint of, oh, this is HTTP Archive, but kind of like my visualization take on it, right? Like I just wanted to have some certain data points. And you're right, because if you look at HTTP Archive's website, right? Like there's a bunch of different reports. There's like a state of JavaScript report, a state of images report, and they just show some nice high level graphs on some data points. So that's kind of doing what PerfTac is trying to do on, on a lot of other things, which is super cool and actually shows trends. So I did have the idea of maybe eventually, maybe it could be cool to have, I don't know, a state of the frameworks report, right? And PerfTrack doesn't have to be its own thing. And it could be something that just lives in the HTTP Archive website. And I've been talking a lot with Rick Viscomi. He actually helped a lot, helped me build PerfTrack because he's built a lot of similar tooling. I don't know if he's made public yet, but looking at CMS platforms, right? Like how well are sites using WordPress doing? How well are sites using Shopify doing and so forth? Oh, that's important. And it's super important. Wix. Wix, yeah, Squarespace, <laughs> and, the, and the list goes on. Magento, um, Drupal. But I think we're both now talking about, it's cool that we have two separate things, but maybe we should combine them, right? Like combine efforts. I think people would love to see all that information. For sure. Probably reduce the, the, the individual lift for you as well, especially like manually syncing over. Another similar sort of initiative that I kind of compare this to is uh, tooling.report, which uh, was also cross, I guess, cross tooling, like a little bit potentially political, <laughs> but they, but they put a single number on a, on a, on under, under every logo, you know, uh, and, it, and it kind of, kind of makes it like a little bit of a contest. And I know you want it to be, you know, very sort of like, yes, there's, there's many dimensions on which like a, a framework uh, can be evaluated, but like, weren't you tempted to, to, you know, reduce everything down to a single number? I really would I'm not, I can lie and say I'm not tempted to do that. I personally <laughs> would love <laughs> to see like a high level number, right? At least it gives you some sort of indication on how well they perform with all the caveats, right? But I'm just so scared to do that because if I know if I do, we're going to start seeing threats and hacker news, right? With like, <laughs> yeah. oh, take a look. We have <laughs> Angular or React or Vue performing at this number. Can you believe it? And I'm like, I don't know if I want, I'm ready for that. <laughs> I think it was Jason and, and a bunch of other people, but um, yeah, what what they did was they just got the maintainers involved, so everyone had buy in, and then everyone was like, okay, well, you know, these are these are some things that we think are valuable, and then we'll try to be better on those. It's it's a I think it's more about buy in than about not ever doing it. Great point, you're right, and maybe it's just more sort of like how we can surface that information. And I'm glad you said that too, because I've been talking to the Angular team for a while, and they've been giving me some great feedback. You know, they're like, our total sample size looks interesting. They're like, we're pretty certain it's way larger than that. Is there something going on in the detection method? So like, they've been helping me try to figure <laughs> out if there's something wrong. And I don't blame them for thinking that, right? Yeah, they're at 0.4. And it could be like, maybe it's just Angular 1. Yeah, exactly. Like, the way I've done it now is just specifically just Angular 2+. So it's not including Angular 1. But 
even then, right? Like maybe there's something missing. Maybe there's something I'm not doing that's missing a lot of Angular sites. So you're right. I think getting buy-in is so important, especially also if we end up trying to show like numbers or high-level indicators that just tries to sum everything up. Yeah, I like that. That's a good way to put it instead of just saying no. Just another another question actually around the data that HP Archive uses. Where does it get its list of URLs from? Like, yeah, does it? You know, how does it pick them? Yeah. So there's there's some certain criteria. I generally don't know if the specifics can be made public, but there's it literally just finds so it 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 curates a top list in in some sense of popularity. And I think when it started, it was much less URLs. I think there was only about a million. And only about a year or two ago, they kind of moved it up to about five or six million. And it gets the URLs from Chrome User Experience Report. So even though, and this might, it's kind of confusing at first, but Chrome User Experience Report is a separate data source, but it's sort of also the source of all the URLs. And it's kind of like just a public mini version of all of Chrome's internal metrics pipeline. Like we have our own internal metrics pipeline. This is just a small public lens to it. And there's some specific criteria. One of them that I know definitely is true is I think usage statistic reporting has to be enabled in the browser. So like there's, there's, there's definitely some certain things like that. And then that is all given to HP Archive. HP Archive gets that list of top URLs and it does what it needs to do. And that's also something to keep in mind because yes, it's a lot of URLs, but we're also not taking into account the millions of other URLs that are not included into the data set. Sure. Well, I guess we'll, we'll talk about tech stack. <laughs> that's, the, yeah. that's the big so one. That's the, that's the last question. What did you use to build this? I used Svelte to build it. No, yeah, so I did spend a little time trying to figure out what I wanted to use. The nice thing about just building projects every now and then, I can just, I can dabble <laughs> and pick something else. But I've never used Svelte before, and I've always wanted to. And I thought this would be the perfect way to just get familiar with it. It's not a small app, but it's not very massive either, right? Like, it's got some of your basic components. Like, I got to worry about how components work together. I got to figure out routing and all that. So I thought this would be a good exercise to just start thinking about and how Svelte works. And yeah, so I picked Belt. I was also really considering using Sapper, didn't, and now I kind of regret it. <laughs> so I've been meaning trying to figure out how I can add server rendering somehow with Sapper, which which I hope wouldn't be too bad. But yeah, and it's been a great experience. Like I yeah, I definitely enjoyed using Svelte a lot. And I feel like the one thing that I really sort of enjoyed was I'm trying to think of it as like if I wanted to learn a framework as a brand new developer, I felt like it was just so intuitive to just create Svelte files, add a script tag, add a style tag, add your markup, and that's it. Like I didn't have to worry about JSX, I didn't have to worry about dependency injection. I was just like, if I was to learn a framework from the very beginning, four years ago, and if I just saw Svelte the way it was, I'm like, this would have been perfect for me. But yeah, that was kind of my like my first thought <laughs> using Svelte. So that's, that's good to hear, that's kind, of the, that's the kind of the goal, I guess, so that's really good. I think the phrase, the phrase that appealed to me from, from Rich was, JS, like HTML is, is the fundamental sort of language that of the web uh, that everyone learns to speak first before basically everything else. And every Svelte file is basically, you know, a tiny superset of, of HTML. So it seems like a very natural progression. Like I, I almost want to, yeah, I, I, like, I, I don't know if it's like appropriate, but like, you know, like beginners, like if they want to start with, with Svelte first and then like, I, I think, I think that's a, that's a really good idea actually. Yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. Like, I feel like now if somebody asked me and said, hey, I wanted to use a framework and I just want to learn how component scoping works, what do I use? I think, you know, immediately I'd be like, just try Svelte instead of, you know, suggesting, hey, use this other tool, but you got to worry about this and that too. and got to learn that, right? Like, I think Svelte would be a very nice thing to just try out at first, right? So no, I agree. I agree for sure. So I personally went from from React to Svelte and uh, I, was, I was so amazed by the developer experience. Right. So it's really nice. I went from Angular 1 to Svelte. Oh, wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this yeah this, this is back in the day. Well, I, I mean, I, I was traditionally a back-ender and I sort of had to do front-end because I was running a startup based by myself. So I sort of learned front-end. I learned Angular because I kind of knew a bit of it anyway. And I have to say it's like night and day going from all the injector patterns and stuff and and, and services. And, and we'd, we'd actually componentized the Angular app, the Angular one point, I have no idea what it even was, one point six maybe, I don't remember, but it was it was it was componentized, but it was just a lot of wiring, and we were trying to do the same things that when I looked at Svelte, I was like, well, it's already there, it's already done, so it was an easy sell for sure. When was it? Was this like a number of years ago? This was when Svelte one was the thing. So double double braces, lots of handlebar type stuff, and 
lots of lots of nice bugs to play with yeah but it was great it worked you know and i started using it for like widgets to put in other sites because it was perfect no runtime that yeah. kind of thing and then when i had to go and work on the main app i was like oh how do i how do i move this <laughs> how do i move this off now yeah you know that's when it gets kind of when you start dreading it but once you start i feel like it's not as bad as, yeah. as the anticipation yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> Anthony, I got I got bad news for you. Hussein uses a router, but it's not Routify. It's uh, it's this thing, Svelte routing. It is Svelte routing. I've never heard of wow. it. I mean, I mean, to be honest, there's there's so many routers for Svelte. It's unreal. None of them are official, but there's so so many. I think Routify is brilliant. Routify, Routify. I think it's I think it's fantastic. But I actually I only use it in one project as well. Okay. I use PageJS a lot. PageJS. You know, I've gone with the sort of yeah, traditional... it's like a general one, right? Yeah. It's just a vanilla router, yeah. Just kind of works. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty nice that it works out of the box, sort of. But the fun, the fun thing I guess about Svelte is again because it's quite simple. Writing your own router is not that that difficult, and so uh, a lot of things I've done, and a lot of things my friends have done actually, we've just used the Svelte component with this, and you just change the variable passed in, and it's done. Like your routing's finished, and it's it's that easy. And it's like, well, <laughs> do I need a router? Maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Like to be honest, I. I just wanted to find something and I found Svelte routing and I was like, okay, I think this might work. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think it does what I needed to do, but no, like I just, I think that was the one thing I, I kind of always had to get used to. There's no first in-class router. I don't know if Rich or anyone, it, Anthony or anyone involved, right? Yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah, there's a plan. We haven't, we haven't really picked which one it'll be yet or whether it's a, a ground up rewrite, but it's definitely, and it was, it was definitely an opinion of the, you know, the maintainers that we weren't going to have a router let people bring their own let's not be opinionated about it and it's just the amount of pushback from the community and and, and demand has been right we we probably need a router a lot of people come from view and expect a router got it that's and usually what, what i hear yeah, at least absolutely yeah. or, or anything else actually because everything else has a router right everything else yeah yep yeah <laughs> so i was going to ask you like some more general questions about where you think the web is heading in the future do you think do you think we're getting heavier or lighter uh, sites in terms of JavaScript payload. Uh, yeah, I think I think we're definitely getting heavier, <laughs> and the trends are showing that it's getting heavier. And with that being said, you know browsers are improving the JavaScript engines, right? Like parsing, compiling, even executing are are improving. So, for example, like if you look at let's say Chrome forty one versus the current version of Chrome, and try to load the same bundle of JavaScript, you'll notice how significant the change has been. So, I think that's also progressing and improving, which is great. But with that being said, I do think sites are getting heavier and heavier, and I don't generally know if if they're happening proportionally. <laughs> so I think that's that's something we yeah, and that's pretty much my job and a lot of other people that I work with, right? Like, how can we course correct that? It's not going to be easy, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. What are people putting on their websites that's so so heavy? I'm glad you say that because you know, coming in from a frameworks angle, you hear a lot of people that are very you know very. I wouldn't say anti-framework, but that's essentially the first thought. They would be like, oh, you're using a heavy framework. It's immediately costing X JavaScript bytes on your site. Consider using something else. And that's not wrong, right? Like, if you're using anything that, that has an initial cost, it's going to really affect your initial performance. But I think when you start looking at also like data as a whole, you realize that that's usually a very small percentage of the total. And you look at, for example, third-party dependencies and third-party bloat. I've seen so many statistics, some of them being 70 or 80% of most sites are coming from third-party scripts, right? And then you start seeing things like that and you're like, wow, okay, I spend so much time telling people what to do with their first-party code, but that's going to pale in comparison if they're fetching, you know, a thousand scripts, right? <laughs> that are doing a million different things, bro. I think that's a very costly thing that hasn't improved in so long. It's only getting worse. And like, I know a lot of things are happening now in Chrome as well as other browsers, but that's something that definitely needs to improve. How can we improve the dependency bloat that we have today? I think I think it's interesting because when I started Bianca again, I wasn't I wasn't particularly a strong front ender, and I sort of was learning. You know, I was sticking dependencies in because I didn't want to run my own Lodash or anything like that. And the moment you put Lodash in there, even with the tree shaking, it's not that small. And and I saw it in there, and I thought, this is I don't need this. I'm using like three utilities out of it. And I pulled it out and I went, my bundle went from six megs to about two megs. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. How can I, I can do better than this. So I started looking at all the dependencies. I started looking at Moment, for example. Moment's huge. DayJS is basically a drop-in replacement and it's two kilobytes. 
And so I started on this path and I found Angus C's uh, collection of libraries called Just, where it has a bunch of stuff just as one thing. That replaces that replaces Lodash. There's Moment. There's like a, there's a whole load of like alternatives, but they're not very visible. I, I find people people always come at Axios, for example. Axios fetches in the browser. That's zero kilobytes, right? You know, all the stuff is kind of built in. Or why isn't there a bigger kind of visibility? And I think that would be a good thing to improve. So is this just IE eleven or? Is there a bigger story? Like why? Yeah, why are people still using this stuff? Well, I think it's just browsers, isn't it? Really, it's you know browsers, browsers and string prototypes, things like that. They don't, and they probably shouldn't have every single utility in the world on top of them. Um, it's getting less and less important. Yeah, when it comes to when we talk about IE eleven or other browsers, right? Like polyfilling is also a huge, huge issue, right? Like I think a lot of people when they build their websites and they need to support legacy browsers, right? They end up including so many polyfills that the vast majority of their users who are using a lot of newer browsers don't need. And that's a huge one, right? So there's been there's been a lot of things that we've been advocating for, a lot of patterns like module, no module. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but it's the idea of adding a module attribute to a script that doesn't have any polyfills, that's using newer syntax, then having a no module script. So browsers can now selectively pick the right one, which makes perfect sense. But a few folks, me, Jason, Gary and other field people are actually looking at ways we can make that even better because although that's super useful, a lot of third-party dependencies in general are being published using legacy code, right? Like as if somebody who pushes something to NPM, they're not trying, most, I think most package authors aren't trying and thinking of ways of using the most newest syntax, right? So they're just trying to make it as wildly as usable for everybody, for every browser, right? And they just want to make sure that anybody can use the package. So I think that is also an angle we need to be looking into a lot better. But yeah, so I think that's, that's browser support is huge. And I also think part of it too is just knowledge, right? Like, Anthony, like you might be super savvy enough to actually spend some time looking into your bundles, be like, why Axios is here? But if you think of the millions of sites out there and the millions of developers using millions of like legacy applications, they probably don't even know what's actually happening beneath, these, beneath the scenes, right? So I think just developer knowledge is a huge factor, yeah. I think I think actually one of the, one of the hardest parts about that process was, and I think I was using Webpack at the time, was actually installing the plugin that gives you the report of what you're sending your bundle. That was probably the hardest bit of the whole process. And and I think that's almost, it feels like it should be built in almost now, like a, like a flag, you know, because it's really, it's really important. It's really important. 100%. You're probably using Webpack Bundle Analyzer or, or something similar like something that. Like that yeah. Score, yeah, something like that, yeah. Exactly. And I agree. This talk about like dependencies really makes me want to build a, like a small website that just shows you like alternatives to all these heavy heavy widely used packages that would be really nice to have you may not need and then and then just fill in your dependency yeah 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 so that's a great idea for it actually there is a guy who's done this it's very unknown small project right now but it's it's the groundwork is there. <laughs> well, can you name it? Like, <laughs> it's going to stay unknown if you don't. <laughs> I, I wish I could. I'd have to search my GitHub stars. It's too unknown. I'll, I'll maybe edit my picks. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like something we could promote at some point. You know, I, I have a couple of thoughts on, on this. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a few things. So one is, I think there's a culture that I really like in Svelte, where uh, Svelte is most people's second or third framework like most people don't come to, to svelte straight away so they're a little bit more thoughtful about uh, about dependencies when they come here when they come to svelte partially because they come to svelte for the the bundle size reason and then i just see like all the tools in default uh, in, in the svelte ecosystem tend to be a little bit more conscious about the, the the weight that they add and i think it's something that comes from rich harris himself like he wrote a blog post which i which i really like uh, i think he called he said, I think it's called something like small modules, maybe not, like where it kind of questions like this whole culture that we have of like, okay, well, we'll import this one thing that imports this other thing. And it's like, it's like, yeah, it's a Unix philosophy, but there's a whole bunch of defensive coding in there and we don't really audit what we bring in. But it does tend to have this like weird upside, like, you know, you know, like stranger things, like there's the normal world that everyone else lives in. And then there's the upside down world where like, it's just like the duplicate versions of every, 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 every library that people use. Most of them are done by Luke Jackson for some reason. <laughs> um, to me, that's not a world I want to live in as well, because like, I want everyone to kind of use like a best in class tool, but maybe, maybe it's just too difficult at this stage. The other thing, the other thing that comes to mind, uh, I've, I've, I've sort of mentioned it on this podcast before, but I, I think since, since, you know, he's your coworker, uh, Ilya Grigoric, who wrote high performance browser networking, but he also, he also talks a little bit about how 
we're never going to reach the whatever like 50% of developers who will who just continue to build big sites the way they always have then they just they just always it just always has worked that way so they just keep keep doing that and if you really want it to work you have to kind of build it into the platform and I, I don't know what the conclusion is, but like maybe this is a, a problem that reaches beyond frameworks and, and uh, goes right into browsers. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like frameworks, I think, plays a part, but there's definitely a lot more to it, 100%. Um, so it seems like uh, Anthony found the, uh, found the I actual did. package. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I went and looked it up in my stars. Yes, yeah, so it's really hard to read out verbally. So we'll tweet it as well from the account, right? But it's, it's Pioneer Pat with a zero after the PI. Uh, smaller dash npm dash packages. Yeah, have a look. It's very a very short list right now, but it's if a few people contribute to it, it'll be amazing. I kind of call this bending the curve because it's very twenty twenty to to bend curves. And <laughs> but like I thought we were having some impact. I thought things were leveling off in terms of you know. I think one of the other discussions that is coming up is this separation between people who build sites and people who build apps. Because people who build apps, you're trying to compete with native apps, right? Which are hundreds of megabytes. Uh, and they don't care because they just they just sort of do the initial download. And it's kind of unfair to hold all these sites on the same benchmark and give them the same tools to express what they need. So I think there's this discussion about like, what if we had a new document type that was like document type app or, or something? I, I, don't know, I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, it's something that Rich Harris has also gotten into. Yeah, I did see some discussion around there yeah i think a few other folks also kind of like wrote some articles exploring that mindset yeah i remember seeing that which is super interesting like i like yeah i'm just i'm super interested in that kind of information like it make it makes sense to think about things in those lens but it's also like how do we make sure things like that can be sustainable in the future but yeah if you're thinking about predictions i feel like that's one thing that i feel like i don't know we might start seeing in i don't know five years time if that's not too conservative yeah all right I think that's it. Do you guys have any picks? I have one. We didn't warn you. We never yeah. warn our guests about yeah, picks. Yeah, we should warn the guests. <laughs> I, need, should, I need to do a start job doing that. that. I'm like quickly thinking of something. <laughs> I'll, I'll, go, I'll go first then. It, it doesn't have to be tech related. It can just be anything that no, is sort of brands your day. Yeah. No, okay, nice. So I've picked the computer mouse today. It's called a uh, MX Vertical. It looks kind of funny. So think of it like a regular mouse, but you turn it 90 degrees. So you kind of hold it in like a natural, natural way. It's really nice. Nice for your underarms and nice for your underarms. What does that mean? Uh, well, I mean, what, where are you putting your mouse, man? Like what? Oh, it's 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 like the it's like the the angle you have your arm in gets better if you turn your hand up ninety degrees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of hard to dis- to explain, <laughs> but it, it seems to be working for me at least. I'm enjoying it. Nice, yeah. No, I think I definitely need to invest something like that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my pick is going to be, it's actually weird. It's another weird one. I always like, it's a tradition now that I have a weird pick that doesn't make any sense. But it's it's a laptop I don't yet own. I have used one before and I have seen a, a couple of friends who've got them. And it's the System76, their, their new laptop. The name has slipped me by right now. I completely lost the name, but it's it's their kind of alternative to the Dell XPS and the HP MB. It's a very uh, thin ultra book, but the nice thing about it is actually the components inside aren't soldered to the motherboard. So it can you can configure the amount of RAM you want, but I'm going to get one with 40 gigs of RAM because I've been stuck with this Dell XPS, which has got eight gigs of soldered RAM for so long. And it, it really struggles. It's struggling with this. It struggles with a lot of things. It's time to upgrade. And I think that soldered RAM is, should now be a thing of the past. So I'm looking forward to being able to slot some new sticks in there and stuff. Uh, and it's got a it's got a really nice spec. It's very lightweight. It's lighter than the XPS. In fact, it's I think it's zero point. It's hundred grams lighter, so it's just over a kilogram, uh, which is not bad for a sort of very modern i seven laptop with forty gigs of RAM. And you can configure up to a four terabyte SSD, which no one in the world ever needs. Let's face it. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask this, but uh, how do you know? Do you guys know how many hours a day you spend on YouTube? Too many. Uh way too many you can actually draw it up on your on your, your on your own stats like I, I i have to you just go to you just go to youtube app and then you just hit to time watched and it uh and it shows you the, the hours a day so i spend roughly three hours a day which is which kind of makes it my second most used app after uh my podcast player and so i'm gonna i'm just gonna pick youtube premium just because like it lets you skip ads it lets you download stuff and i actually got the family plan so my dad works in aviation which side side note 
it's not doing well. Uh, so, <laughs> so he's just been spending all day watching YouTube. And I was like, I saw him and I was like, he, he, he's just like sitting through a lot of ads. And I was just, I, I just got the family plan and it's, it's super cheap. It gets a lot of entertainment and there's a lot of quality stuff on YouTube and I, I like it a lot. So figured I'd pick a Google product here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. I think I have one. <laughs> it's going to be really random, but I don't know if you all use certain weather apps on your phone to just track the weather. If you use like the, the default weather app that your phone comes with. But somebody recently just told me about this app called Dark Sky. They got bought, right? I think so. By Apple. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I didn't think I would need that kind of information, but I was like, you know what? Let me just check in a couple of dollars. I think it was the first mobile app I've ever bought. <laughs> but I, like ever. <laughs> that just goes to show like how I never try to buy wow. anything on my phone. Yeah. But I was like, oh, it's pretty cool because it kind of shows like some super hyper local information. I think it goes down to the minute of like whether it's going to rain, whether it's going to snow. So I've been having fun just playing around with the app. But yeah. Dark sky, random flight. <laughs> does it does it work? It does like work. the predictions. Yeah. Uh, awesome. uh, but yeah, they do. I think you meant the app. Oh, like, yeah, the app. No. <laughs> the app uh, predictions works, right. do actually for like yeah. ever since I've gotten in the past few weeks. Like when it says it's going to rain at seven p.m., it rains at seven p.m. So it's definitely not one hundred percent accurate. That's but cool. It's definitely like surprising me. That's for sure. <laughs> I have I have used dark sky in the past actually, and I found it to be very very accurate. It was almost on the minute, which is quite amazing. It's a, it's a great app. Yeah, wow. so it's sort of I just, scary I, at the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I thought I thought it was gone because um, when Apple bought it, they seemed to sort of make it disappear. So it's good that yeah, it's good it's still around, I guess. It, yeah. Could be only Android, maybe. It, no, maybe Android? it is. But I have an iPhone. Just, yeah. I have it. So Apple well, did something get, good. I have to get it then. I get it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they actually have a bunch of really cool open source libraries as well, such as the Time Zone Converter, which is really useful. So. It's worth checking out their GitHub too. That's super cool. I did not know that. Wow. Okay. So I think that's it. Thank you, Sam, for coming on and talking to us about studio audience. The studio audience is very excited. Very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on and talking to us about PerfTrack, the web, and uh, any and all topics we we spoke about today. For sure. No, thank you guys. This was great. This was a good chat for sure. (laughs) Thank you. Awesome. All right. See you uh, next time, listeners. Bye. Bye. Bye.